Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Boris Jovanov. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to the end of this short series where we were reminded um, of the wonderful, liberating truths that your scripture has and that as a movement, you've revealed to us to be able to reveal to the whole world. Lord, I ask that your spirit, the same spirit that inspired this movement, the same spirit that revealed the truth, the same spirit that inspired the prophets who wrote in your scriptures, Lord, that that same spirit may be here amongst us, revealing to us your truth. Be with me and with all of us here present. Preach to me as well as through me. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. I don't understand why we as humans pretend like we're strong. We have this tendency to pretend like we're invincible and yet invisible bacteria can destroy us, right? A slippery surface can be the end. We are fragile and we can put on tough exterior, but at the end of the day, we're all human. And I honestly, I do not know how some people can go through what life dishes out without any hope. You you get what I'm saying? Some here, many here have probably experienced loss, a significant loss. And you from your experience know that we're not made to experience that. Like, do you know that everyone, bar a handful of exceptions, that everyone that's ever lived died? You guys are familiar with that? Don't you think we would by now have evolved to become comfortable with death? Do you get what I'm saying? Everything that's ever lived is now dead. So how is it to this day when someone passes, it is extremely unnatural. And then we have this hope that this isn't a goodbye, it's a see you later. We have this hope that we're asleep, awaiting for that glorious coming of our Lord, King and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will bring an end to the chaos who bring an end to the suffering. The pain of this world is not accepted by the divine that this is the new norm. But even that in the heavenly scheme, in the cosmic scheme is a temporary thing because scripture teaches that Jesus will come again and make all things new. And that hope for me makes everything else more bearable, even though it's still painful. We are Seventh-day Adventists. 
In this series, we've already covered the seventh day portion of that in the Sabbath. But Adventists, we are so convinced that Jesus is coming back soon, that in our very name of who you are, we are seventh day Adventists. We are people who believe Jesus is coming back again. And if you believe that, say amen with me, church. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter one. And we're gonna be reading from verses nine through 11. Acts chapter one, verses nine through 11. And I'm just gonna reveal to you a little bit of a secret in how I function. There will be some sermons where you have plenty of passages on the screen. There'll be others where I don't do that. And I want you to bring your Bibles just in case. All right, if you don't have your Bibles, there's free apps on your phones. Acts chapter one, and we're gonna start in verse nine. The Bible says this. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he, being Jesus, was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come how? In like manner, as you saw him go into heaven. Friends, very clearly from scripture, how will Jesus return? In like manner to how he ascended, yes? Now, how was Jesus when he ascended? Was he a spirit, was he a ghost? What does scripture reveal to us about Jesus in the form of his ascension? Well, let's turn to the book of Luke for that answer. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And let's begin in verse 36. Luke 24, and we're going to begin in verse 36. Do I have your permission to read? All right, Luke 24 and verse 36. It says, now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, peace to you. Now their response is a little weird for someone who's wishing them peace. Because the very next verse tells us, but they were terrified and frightened. (laughs) And suppose that they had seen a spirit. Jesus appears to them after his resurrection, and what did the disciples think he must be? A spirit, a ghost, yes? But Jesus is emphasizing something here. In verse 38, he said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your heart? Behold my hands and feet, that it is I myself. And then what does he say? Handle me, touch me. And see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And jump down to verse 50 very quickly. It says, and he led them out as far as Bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And now it came to pass that while he blessed them that he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Now don't miss this. Jesus wanted to make a point to them right before his ascension, that he was what? That he was physical, yes? 
touch me, handle me, for a spirit doesn't have flesh. Jesus is emphasizing that he is literally him and not some spiritual form of him, yes? And then the angels tell them that this Jesus will come back in like manner. The Bible is very clear that the second coming is a literal and physical event where Jesus himself will physically descend to earth, yes? Now, Scripture does say he won't touch the earth, but he will descend to earth to be able to come and take us home. And the angel said to them, see this Jesus, the one that you saw, he'll come back in like manner. Now, will it be only the followers, only the disciples of Jesus that see him? Well, let's turn to Revelation chapter one and verse seven. And for most of you, the passages that we're turning to are very familiar, but I think it's really important that we remind ourselves of these because scripture is abundantly clear and sometimes there can be people with tricky words and tricky sayings that can try put something that makes something that's very clear seem quite complex when it is not. The Bible in Revelation chapter one and verse seven says very clearly about who will, something about who will see Jesus. Revelation chapter one and verse seven, the Bible says this, Behold, he is coming, how? With clouds, and how many eyes shall see him? And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24, it actually says that as far as the east is from the west, oh, sorry, as lightning flashes from the west into the east, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, who will see this? Everyone, Matthew 24 actually spends a whole bunch of time where Jesus himself is saying that if someone has to tell you that I'm here, I'm not here, right? He says, if they come and say he's in the wilderness or he's over there, don't go. So it's going to be a physical event, a literal event. Every eye will see him. And according to the Bible, who's gonna come with him? Well, let's go to Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. So far is the Bible speaking in code. It seems to be saying very plainly, in fact, when it comes to the second coming of Jesus Christ, in the, Old, in the New Testament, no other thing is mentioned more. So of course it's going to be very easy to find very plain things that it says about the second coming because it talks about it so much. Matthew 25 verse 31, it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Who's coming back with Jesus? Now, here's just a little cool side note. A few weeks ago, I talked about the sanctuary and that's kind of a difficult thing to kind of do in one session. But here's just a little interesting. According to the Bible, who's participating in the investigative judgment happening now with, with God? We talked about this. It's the angels, yes? And who does God come with to deliver the reward of this judgment? The angels. 
During the millennium, who participates with God in the judgment? The redeemed, yes? And at the end of the millennium, who comes down with Jesus to deliver the reward? The redeemed. Do you see this? And so they can be why, you know, some have said, well, that gives him lots of help to be able to rapture all of us up and take us home. But possibly it's also because God does everything transparently that those who partook in the judgment can come and bear witness that those who, are, who have chosen Jesus are the ones who come to heaven. Because there is a witness component in the great controversy all the way through. And so God, being all-knowing, he knows the end from the beginning, but for the sake of us, he allows witnesses to observe these things and understand these things the whole way through so that in eternity there can never be another time where doubts and questions arise because there are witnesses that God did everything justly, yeah? And so who's coming back with Jesus? Angels. It's a, he's coming back literally, he's coming back physically. Everyone will see him. He's not coming back alone. It's going to be a massive, massive event. In fact, this is one of my favorite passages on the resurrection in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 16. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the what? And the dead in Christ. What does it say? What will happen to him? Will rise first. So not only are we seeing this thing happening in heaven, but there is an extraordinary thing happening on earth, isn't there? Graves are opening and those that we've lost are rising. And then we who are alive, verse 17, and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And I love the next verse here. I love verse 18. It says, therefore comfort one another with these words. You know, people are like, ha, the Bible's for the weak. I don't need that crutch. Maybe I do. Maybe you don't. I, I do. I actually think it's a really good thing to have hope. And I think what adds to the beauty of this hope is that the Bible has given us so many prophecies that have come true that we can verify has happened that gives us confidence that the ones that will come will also come, Yes? There is a reason one third of the Bible can be tested. Because every time you see that what God says will happen, happens, it builds confidence that what he says will happen in the future will also happen as he predicted other things in the past. You follow what I'm saying? And so this isn't some airy hope to just kind of feel better, but rather this is a truth. And this is the truth. It's crazy. It's insane. Here's what the Bible teaches, and here's what I believe. I believe that one day, Jesus, who 2,000 years ago died and was resurrected and has gone to heaven, is ministering on our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary. I believe that one day when the close of probation happens, he will rise from his ministry there, 
and he will leave heaven with the hosts of angels. And I believe that Jesus and the angels are gonna be coming down here to earth. And then I believe what the Bible says here, that there will be a trumpet sound. And there will be brightness as lightning covers the heavens. God in his glory with all his angels, when they get close, this thing is gonna be bright and the sky will roll back. Then the earth will quiver and shake. And then those who have died in Jesus will rise from their graves and ascend to Jesus. And then we who are alive and remain and witness all these things will then be raptured up to him or lifted up to him. And then we will all go into a place that the Bible calls heaven. That sounds crazy a little bit, doesn't it? Like, doesn't it? Like, when you just articulate in normal words, like, I believe... God will come back and then when he does, there'll be like a trumpet sound He'll, and there'll be like shouts and then like the graves will open and somehow, even though most of the graves are just dust, real people who died in Jesus will be resurrected and taken up to heaven and when we see all of this, we then who are alive and remain will watch this and go up. Doesn't that sound crazy, yes or no? I think it does sound a little crazy, to be honest. But do you know what else sounds crazy? Being a slave in Egypt and just getting whipped and tortured and life being horrible and then someone saying, hey, listen, it's okay because one day there'll be like a Messiah there'll be a man who's born and he'll get rid of all the people that are, he'll, he'll, he'll sort it all out. Next generation. Don't worry, like there'll be a Messiah. You know, th th this person who's born, th the seed of Abraham and, and, and he'll make it right. Like, doesn't that just sound crazy? You've got a nation who, who's enslaved and persecuted in and out, in and out, horrible, 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 constantly persecuted. And the hope is, don't worry, there'll be a man that's born one day and he'll sort it out. Doesn't that sound a little crazy, yes or no? Like the whole idea of Messiah is beyond crazy. That, especially from our side of things, that God will become flesh and then live perfectly, allowing himself to be tempted in all points as we are, and yet refuting, refusing those temptations, and living perfectly, and then God, who's taken upon himself flesh, dies the death you deserve, so that you can live the life that he deserves. Doesn't that just sound a bit out there? And yet guess what? Everything that is said about his first coming happened exactly as it was written. And so very clearly we can see if that is 100% true, that builds our faith that what he says about his second coming is 100% true, yeah? It doesn't matter how it sounds, it matters that it's written because if it's written, it will come to pass. Most scholars agree that the book of Job is the first book that was actually authored by Moses. There's some debate on it, but by and large, they believe the book of Job was written first. Now I want us to just reflect on the book of Job really quickly. Job was a righteous man in God's eyes. In fact, if you turn to Job chapter one, 
If you struggle to find it, it's the book right in front of Psalms. Job chapter one. And I want us just to read the description of Job. And I want us to see something in his story that will hopefully affirm what, what we know Scripture clearly, clearly teaches, and that is that Jesus is coming too, and there will be a resurrection of those who die in Jesus Christ. And this mess, this world, this sin, this suffering, this pain, this horrific thing that is going around us constantly is not the new norm, but it too shall come to an end. The Bible says in verse one, it says, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. So how many kids did he have? 10. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Does he have a good standing with God, yes or no? Does he have a good standing in his family? Does he seem to be abundantly blessed? In fact, scripture would say that he was regarded as one of the greatest of all the people in the East. And yet, for those who are familiar with the story, for those who are not, we'll recap it very briefly. Tragedy comes upon him. God allows, for some reason, God allows calamities to come upon him. And first, it starts with the animals. He loses his sheep, he loses his camels, he loses his oxen, he loses his donkeys. Now, I don't know about you, but my family, we've recently got into chickens. We have 12 chickens at home. And people there in Talgum, they've warned us that there is apparently plenty of wild dogs out there. Seems like you've got a lot of wild everything out here, to be honest. And they said that they'll often try get in, and then you've got the foxes who will go try get them, and then obviously you've got the snakes that are trying to get them. And so we've got 12 chickens, and every single night, this is our routine. Sunsets, they go in by themselves, they get up on their, um, on their what is it called? Perch, and... And so we get in there with a torch and we close the food so that the, uh, the rats and mice and stuff don't get it. And we make sure we haven't missed any eggs. And then it's one with the torch. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. 10, 11, 12. A couple of weeks ago, my son did a count and he came back with 11. And what did I do? I was like, whoa, we lost the chicken. I've got to go check it out, right? That's a chicken. Can you imagine losing what Job lost? Like this is life altering. This changes life, but that's not where it ends. The Bible then goes on and says that he actually, in a calamity, loses his children. All 10, all his sons, all his daughters, gone. I don't know why when you read it in the Bible, it seems a little distant. But see, when I started ministry in Australia, we were asked to go be global mission pioneers in a town called Ingham, where there was once upon a time an Adventist presence, and now there wasn't. And in Ingham, the only Adventists that were in town were two elderly ladies, Faye and Sylvia. And the way that they were described to me, the way the church was described to me, 
is that, you know, you got two elderly ladies, one is in her mid-60s, the other one early 90s, and they don't like each other. Um, which I just thought, how, how, how perfect description is that of human nature, right? Got a two-member church and it's divided. Which is crazy. And so I went there kind of thinking that these are probably nasty people, but they're not. They just haven't been cared for for a long, long time. But Sylvia, the older one, she started sharing her testimony with me. And so she left the Burdekin to come up to Ingham with her older brother when she was in her teens. And she learned a trade. Her trade was, believe it or not, coloring in photos. Right? So people make photos and then she would like manually color them, which that alone blew my mind a bit, to be honest. And anyway, one day, she's going out down the street and she sees a crowd in front of the post office. And so she comes to see what's happening and it was her older brother that she was, it was just them two there, who'd taken a shotgun and killed himself there in front of everyone. Some years pass and she gets married. They end up having four sons. Her husband worked on the rail line and I don't know what happened or how it happened, but one day he fell into a boiling something and his entire body is in third degree burns or second degree burns or something dreadful and so she with four sons and one nursing is nursing her husband or taking care of her husband is fighting the good fight but after three months dies and so she's left with her four sons. A few years after that one of her sons fell off a tree cracked his skull and died. This is a true story. Some years pass and one of her sons is on a motorbike, has a horrific accident and dies. And now she's left with two. They, they both get a bit older. One leaves with his family and he's living down in Ipswich and the other one's at home. And he treats her horrifically. You don't often get tempted to manhandle someone as a pastor, but this is one of the times where it was the Spirit of God that restrains you, right? But not only was he just disgusting to her, he was very sickly and constantly had these stomach ulcers and constantly had these other issues going on. But the saving grace was that her grandson, his son, was just so lovely. And he'd often just like wake up in the morning and snuggle into her bed and they'd just have stories and then make tea and they're just like, she loved him, you know? He's just, that was the joy. He graduates high school and after prom, they go for a drive and there's a car accident and her grandson dies. I got news a couple of years ago that that son who was staying with her, he also died. And it just gets to this point of like, Lord, like how much does someone need to suffer here? 
You know what I mean? Like, I know you're not doing this, but can you spare some extra angels here? Like, do you see how we kind of feel it more when it's actually Sylvia, a person I know that, that you can visit right now and hear her testimony? Job in one day lost everything and all his kids, right? And then on top of that, Scripture says he loses his own health. And he's covered in these boils. It's fair to be like, Lord, when's the end of this? Like, what is going on? And not only that, his wife is like, man, just curse God and die. His friends are coming to comfort him that aren't really comforting him. And you go through the whole story and up to the first 37 chapters, Job essentially has two questions for God. Or there are two accusations made against God throughout the story. And one is, do you even know what's happening? And the second one is, can you even do something about it? And this whole time, it seems like God's silent. God's silent, God's silent. Then he gets these two accusations. Do you even know what's going on? Can you even do anything about it? And then we find chapter 38. And you know what happens in chapter 38? God starts to respond. Now, how many questions did Job ultimately, if you distill them, how many questions did Job ask God? Two. And then God responds to Job with 77 questions. What are the two accusations or the two questions? Do you even know? And can you do anything about it, yeah? And so let's go to chapter 38 and let's look at some of God's responses. Look at verse three, I love this. I love this verse. It just makes me feel like, oh. You know, you remember as a kid when you used to get in trouble and then for whatever reason, you'd swallow hard. You get that kind of like, that kind of thing. I feel like there's a bit of a gulp happening after this sentence from God. Verse three, now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or stretched the line upon it. To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang songs together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the seas with the doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds, its garments, and and just this question after question after question after question after question, of which Job knows how many of the answers. None. And over and over and over and over, God is making the same point emphatically. I know, I know, you don't know, but I know. You don't know, but I know. You don't know, but I know. God, do you even know? Do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know? And at the end of it, you're just overwhelmed. God, I get it. You know. And look at this. If you jumped now to chapter 40, uh, chapter 40, he's got question after question after question. And look at verse three. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I spoke, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. First question's answered. You, I get it, you know. I got, but that's not enough for God. 
Because how many questions were, or accusations were made towards God? Two, and so he gets the fact that God knows. But God doesn't stop there and look at verse seven. Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And then really the next two chapters focus on two creatures. They focus on Leviathan, or Behemoth and Leviathan. Look at verse 15. Now look at the behemoth which I made. Along with you, he eats grass like an ox. See how his strength is in his hips. His power is in his stomach muscle. He moves like a tall cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tight-knit. His bones are like beams of bronze. His ribs like bars of iron. He's talking about this monstrous creature that's got tremendous strength, doesn't he? And look at chapter 41. Can you draw out Leviathan? Well, who's Leviathan? Can you draw him out with a hook? Or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his joy with a hook? Will he make any supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you leash him as your maidens? Will, you, will your companions make a banquet of him? And he goes on and keeps going. Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. Never do it again. In other words, these are constantly rhetorical questions, isn't it? Look at this behemoth, you can't control him. What about Leviathan? You can't control him and what's the implication? I can, you follow? God, do you even know? Can you do anything about it? 77 questions, I get it, you know. Oh yeah, I know. Well, consider these two beasts. Can any human control them? And yet, and yet I do, right? That's the point. And yet I do. In other words, I know and I'm able. I know and I am able. And with your suffering, with your difficult times, it is natural to say, God, do you even see what's going on with Sylvia? Give her a break. He knows. But not only does he know, he's able. I wasn't going to say this, but I think it's very interesting that there is a number of scholars who actually believe that Behemoth and Leviathan are actually the theological building blocks for the two beasts in Revelation. And what's interesting is that even though it seems like there cannot be controlled, there is a God on the throne who is still in control, even when he may not appear like he's in control. You follow? From the very first introduction to things that seem to be out of control, we are told that it may seem that way and yet there is a God who's in control. Verse 40, uh, chapter 42, verse one. Then God answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything. Do you see what he's getting at the end of this? Okay, now I, uh, after it's like, well, I know, I know you know, I'm gonna just shut my mouth. And then after this, it's like, well, I know you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Anyway, Job repents, and then he prays for his friends. 
And look at verse 12, how the story finishes. And I think this is a really important topic. And I know a lot of you are wondering, why are we talking about this when we're meant to be talking about the second coming? Let's try to tie this all together. Verse 12. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep. Who remembers how much he had at the beginning? 7,000. So how, what has God done? He's doubled it. It's 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels. Take a guess at how many he had at the beginning, if you remember. 3,000. God's doubled it, yes? He has 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. How many did he have at the beginning? 500. In every single way, God's doubled what he had, right? He blessed him even more. He's doubled everything that he's had. And then look at this. He also had seven sons and three daughters. How many did he have at the beginning? Isn't it interesting? Everything got doubled and it appears except his sons and daughters. Unless, right here, from one of the earliest books that was ever written that God inspired a prophet to write, Unless from the very beginning, there was a knowledge of a resurrection to come. You follow that? Because come resurrection, how many kids will Job have? You catch that? He did double everything. He doubled everything. See, because even though the memory of them disappears in our mind, it never disappears in God's. And come resurrection morning, Job will have twice as many kids. You follow? God doubled and doubly blessed in every single way in the latter part of his life. Now, don't miss this. Don't miss this. God didn't restore him 20 kids. Why? This is such an important point. Why? You know, God's just finished saying how he knows everything. God's just finished saying how he can do everything, right? He has power, and yet he doesn't give him double the kids 20. He gives them 10. And we know it's because of resurrection, but what it also reveals is that God cannot replace you. You follow? If he gave him 20, it wouldn't have been the 10 that he had lost and then another 10. You follow? You follow? He would have ended up with 30 kids come resurrection, right? You know, don't miss this, don't miss this, don't miss this. God can recreate everything. God can replace everything. Replace is the right word. God can replace everything except for you. You follow that? He can replace everything except for you. And what may seem lost is only in our short-sightedness because there is coming a day where those who we've lost or even us after we've passed will one day be made new. But if you don't choose him, there is no making another you for God. You follow? You're the only you that you can be. And so now's the day to choose him. 
Right from the very first book of, that, was, that was authored, we see reference to resurrection. Yes, we find reference to resurrection. And all throughout the New Testament, repeatedly, we see the second coming being talked about, which is when what takes place? The resurrection. This is the theme all throughout Scripture. Jesus came once, but that's not the end. He's coming again. And when he comes this time, He doesn't just make the way of salvation. We get to experience the fullness of it. And what Sylvia has lost is not the new norm, but can be reclaimed. What Job has lost, I don't know about you, but I just can't imagine losing one of my kids and feeling like I've replaced it. And so if you're Job and you've gone through this tragedy and God blesses doubly and you've got another 10 kids, surely there's still a hole in your heart, yeah? Unless, unless Jesus is coming up again and all will be made new. You follow? It is the great hope because the reality is nothing else on earth can satisfy that thing. There is a whole, we were not made for the temporary, we were made for the eternal and we will get to begin forever when he comes back. And I don't know about you, but as I see things that are taking place around the world, I'm daily more and more convinced that our God is not far off. He's coming back soon. And he will restore all things. But he can only restore what's been given to him. That's not the moment to choose him. Today's the day of that salvation. Colossians 3 is very clear. If your life is hidden with Christ in God, When he appears, you will appear with him. When he comes, he'll recreate all things that he can. And so friends, family, brothers, sisters, choose Jesus. See, because the hope that's there in the second coming is for those who are dead in Christ. God's given all of you that choice. He's given you all of you that grace. So friend, why wouldn't you choose him today? And have that peace, have that assurance, have that even through the tough times because like I said from the very outset, we are not freed from suffering on this side of earth, but knowing, knowing that we are in Christ and when he appears, we'll be with him it makes those tough times a little less tough. And it gives that hope to be able to endure to the end. So won't you give your life to Jesus? If it's your desire to recommit your life to Jesus or maybe commit it to the first time, let's stand and we'll close with a benediction. Heavenly Father, I wanna thank you so much that from the very first pages of your word, right to the very end, you're reminding us 
that things are not hopeless. But you know all things and you can do all things and when the right time has come, you will restore all things that are in you. And so Father God, I wanna give my life to you afresh right now. And Lord, if there is anyone under the sound of my voice who wants to do the same, hear our prayer, Lord. Receive us into your grace. Hide us with Christ in God so that with assurance, we know that when you appear, we shall appear with you in glory. Where all this pain and suffering and temporariness can be put to an end and life with you and each other can happen forever. In Jesus' name, we thank you for your goodness. Amen. This message was made available by the Mwellenbar Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their Facebook page, Mwellenbar Seventh-day Adventist Church. sweet will be to meet the Lord when He comes in glory by and by. What a song of praise will be outpoured when He comes in glory by and by. How sweet will be, how sweet will be when He comes again in the lovely sky. What joy it will be, what joy it will be when He comes in glory by and by. We will have our robes all white as snow when He comes in glory by and by. Oh, be ready with the Lord to go when He comes in glory by and by. How sweet will be, how sweet will be when He comes again in the starlit sky. What joy it will be, what joy it will be when He comes in glory by and by. I am longing for that happy day when He comes in glory by and by. For with Him I hope to soar away when He comes in glory by and by. How sweet will be, how sweet will be when He comes again in the starlit sky. What joy it will be, what joy it will be when He comes in glory by and by. That was Acapeldridge with When He Comes in Glory by and by. Coming up next from 3ABN's album, Pillars of Our Faith, Volume 2, this is Jesus is Coming Again. Jesus is coming again. Pilgrims be 
Welcome to God's Favourite Shepherds, a collection of 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters, with many of the stories ending with a short quiz. Listen now to the author of God's Favourite Shepherds, Bill Ackland. Today's story has an interesting title, Born Once or Twice. It has a subheading, Leaders Can Learn. No one likes being ashamed, least of all a person of my standing in the nation of Israel. I am a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. I am therefore greatly respected by the common people. Allow me to tell my story as it unfolded. For some time, an itinerant preacher known as Jesus of Nazareth had been causing quite a stir among the people. Crowds followed him everywhere. Not only did he preach about his favourite subject, the kingdom of heaven, he had power to do amazing miracles. In some places, after he had passed through, there was not one sick person, whereas before he had gone to that town, there were many sick and dying people. However, he was a great annoyance to the Jewish leaders. On the one hand, he had not been to the school of the rabbis, and on the other, He preached in a new and refreshing way. The people hung on his every word, 
to the great embarrassment of the Pharisees, who believed they were the only ones who should explain the Scriptures. Worse still for the Pharisees and Sadducees, they could not trap him with the questions they put to him. He always had an answer that left them with nothing further to say. For some time I had been thinking deeply about this man. Could he be the Messiah? I knew from my study of the ancient prophecies that it was time for the Messiah to reveal himself. But how to be sure that he was the one who he said he was? So I determined to seek him out when no one else was about. I found that he had often resorted to a certain place at night to pray, so it was there that I met him for the first time. It was a face-to-face encounter. I will never forget. At the time, it brought me great embarrassment and shame. But as I later thought long and deeply about what he had said, I realised without question that this man had the words of eternal life. He truly was the Messiah. When I first approached Jesus in the garden, I determined to initiate the conversation. After all, I was a recognised spiritual leader in Israel and the senior man. So in what I said, I acknowledged that he must be from God as he had done wonderful miracles among the people. I was going to say more, but Jesus said something that I thought at that time was very strange. He said that if I was not born again, I could not enter the kingdom of heaven. Not knowing what else to say, I asked him, did he mean that we have to be born again of our mothers in the natural way? What Jesus said next was the cause of my great shame. He asked me why I did not know these things, seeing I was a teacher in Israel. My mind went back to some of the prophets who recorded the words of God, who had said that he would give his people a new heart, a heart of flesh, and take away their old heart of stone. This was obviously the birth that Jesus was talking about, and I had entirely missed the point. Jesus emphasised that the Holy Spirit, who does this work, cannot be seen, just like the wind that is invisible. His influence is significant and lasting. Jesus said that if people are not born again, that is in the spiritual way, then they do not have a part in the kingdom of heaven. Eternal death would be their destiny. I addressed this young man as rabbi, for though he was many years younger than I, it was obvious that he was the teacher and I was the learner. That night's meeting was the turning point of my life, for while I did not openly acknowledge who I knew him to be at that time, I later defended him. The majority of the Pharisees had ordered the officers of the temple to seize him and bring him before them. However, after listening to the wonderful things he said, the soldiers returned to the Pharisees without him. This greatly annoyed the Pharisees. They said, We ordered you to bring this usurper to be judged by us, so where is he? All the soldiers could say was, We have never heard anyone say the wonderful things he has. To this the Pharisees retorted, We cannot believe you men have been deceived so easily. Have any of us believed in him? The crowd that he always seems to have around him are ignorant people. They do not know the law as we do. I could not remain silent any longer. I knew this man was from God. So I made a statement that all the Sanhedrin 
and every Pharisee and scribe knew was correct. Our law says that a man must not be judged until he has been heard, so that it can be verified what he has been doing and saying. My fellow Pharisees all turned and looked at me. One said, Oh, we have one of his sympathizers here, have we? Are you from Galilee? Don't you know there has never been a prophet from Galilee? Some months later, the ministry of this man I knew as the Messiah came to a heart-rending end. On the night of the Passover, he was betrayed by one of his own disciples, dragged before the Sahedron and before Pilate and Herod. He was cruelly beaten, had a crown of thorns forced upon his head, and was taken out of the city to a place called Golgotha and crucified. I looked upon these scenes with dismay. I could hardly believe that our nation would do such a thing to a good man. My thoughts were in turmoil. It seemed that time stood still at the dreadful moment of his death. I sought out Joseph of Arimathea, who I knew also believed in Jesus. Together we obtained permission from Pilate to take the body of the Messiah down from the cross, wrapped it gently in grave clothes and placed it in Joseph's newly hewn tomb. From that time on, both of us threw our lot in with Jesus' followers. Not many weeks later, a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit changed everything. Many priests believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and the good news of the gospel seemed to go like wildfire. How glad I was that I took his words to heart when he told me I had to be born again. This has truly happened to me. One day, when he returns to this earth, as he said he would, to take his people to be with him, I want to thank him for what he said to me in the quietness of that night on the Mount of Olives. The Holy Spirit did move upon me, and I have never been the same since. My name is Nicodemus. You've been listening to God's Favoured Shepherds, a book with 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters. If you have any comments or questions, or to obtain a copy of this book, give us a call within Australia on 02-4973-3456 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.